Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Anil Polat. I have a great episode for you today. Really excited to share my conversation with David Galloway, who is a best-selling author. He's the author of Burning Ground, which is a, a book that combines time travel and history. And not only being a best-selling author of multiple books, he is also a former tour guide of Yellowstone. And that's going to be the topic of our conversation today. We're talking about the founding of the world's first national park and the expedition which helped create that. And not only the expedition from the side of the white settlers who uh, arrived there to survey the area, but also the interaction with the indigenous peoples there. And if you listen to the end of the podcast, you're going to find out why the book is called Burning Ground. So I highly recommend that you listen all the way to the end because it is a very good one. I really enjoyed this uh, conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy the history. It's going to take you there. If, even if you haven't been there, it's going to evoke some vivid images in your mind. It's going to make you want to travel there. Before we get into that conversation, though, just a couple of things happening around the Fox Nomad world. One is we've got a couple of new videos up, one on the Sony Link Buds. They are the absolute weirdest earbuds I have reviewed probably in ever. They have a hole right in the middle of the earbud. So the middle of the earbud is open. So your ears aren't blocked. It's weird because it lets you hear the outside world, but it also lets you hear music or podcasts or whatever you're listening to very, very clearly. They are incredibly comfortable and have made me rethink the massive ear cans that I tend to wear. And uh, now that I'm on the road, I'm in Denver right now. I've got a couple of countries lined up after here. I'm trying to sort of downscale my portable setup, which is getting heavier and heavier. And uh, so that's one of the things. So they are an interesting pair of earbuds. I, I think if you run outside, if you live in a city, they're really good earbuds. So definitely check them out. Also, AirTags, the controversial Bluetooth trackers that have been made by Apple. Well, despite the controversy, there are eight really good reasons, really good ways to use them. Uh, so there's a video out on that. And if you've ever been interested to bug sweep an Airbnb or a rental or a hotel room, I've got a 60-second way to do that. That is up on YouTube as well. It's a short, so if you haven't checked out the YouTube shorts I've been putting out, you know where to go, Fox Nomad on YouTube. Uh, and let's see, one other thing, I have a guest author, a guest writer on foxnomad.com this week. When you're By the time you're listening to this, her name is Josephine Remo. She's a former flight attendant. She's now traveling around the world. But she wrote from her home city. She is Danish. She wrote of seven of the best places to eat in Copenhagen where you can get a meal for under $15 or 100 Danish kron which if you've been to Copenhagen, if you've been to Scandinavia, you know that is a great deal. The photos will make you very hungry and you will want to eat at all of these places. So I highly recommend you check that out. All right, now it's time to get into my conversation with David Galloway. Again, the book is going to be linked in the show notes. So wherever you're listening to this, you can check that out. I think you're going to want to grab a copy uh, after listening to this conversation. So I hope you enjoy this uh whirlwind i guess it's not really whirlwind i guess you this travel back in time to the founding of yellowstone national park all right there we go thank you again for joining the podcast um i've been interested to speak with you david because we're sort of i feel like in a resurgence of interest in in the wild west if you will maybe not wild west but but in the west the frontier um and I don't know why that is, but uh, I'm glad that is. I've I personally read a couple of books recently about the topic, and it's something that, you know, as someone who travels is is just very interesting to me. What brought you to Yellowstone? <laughs> just start start there. Yes. Well, uh, my my first experience in Yellowstone was decades ago. Uh, I'm not a young man at this point, but uh, in the when I was a young man uh, going to university in the late 70s, I was fortunate enough to apply to and be accepted uh, to be employed by 
what is termed uh, generically the park concessioner in Yellowstone National Park. And, and for, for those of your listeners who may not be familiar with that, you, you surely, uh, if you've been to any park or any place where they have the kinds of things that the visitors and the, those uh, uh, touring the area would appreciate, such as things like uh, restaurants or uh, service stations or motels or anything there that uh, caters to the needs of the people visiting a facility. So that so the Yellowstone Park Company was the uh, a, a contracted concessioner for Na Yellowstone National Park, and they provided those various services in that very very large park. And I was employed initially, Anil, as a dock hand. So anyone who has, if you've not been to Yellowstone. Um, Yellowstone has a very large lake. It's the second largest alpine lake in the Western Hemisphere after Lake Titicaca in Peru, and um, uh, meaning above 8,000 feet. And so it's an extremely large lake, and they have a marina there uh, where you can uh, take tours, uh, hire a fishing guide, uh, take out a small outboard motor. And uh, I was hired as a dockhand in that marina, and very quickly, um, uh, fortunately for me, I was able to transition from a dockhand to a tour guide because they were short a tour guide, someone who would drive the scenic cruise boats in a, in a one hour tour around the lake. And they trained me to operate the boat and to learn the commentary uh, that I would provide while I drove that boat. So in a nutshell, uh, that's how I got the Yellowstone and that's what I did there in the 70s. Wow. And, and it seems, I mean, Yellowstone is a huge, huge park. How, how do you, do, do the guides have one section that they focus on or does it just take a really long time to kind of, kind of learn it all? Well, it's quite a bit of information. You're right, by the way. So just to give you some idea perspective, it's 2.2 million acres. That's how large Yellowstone is, the, the, the park boundaries. And uh, what I had to I had to learn uh, at least the basics about all parts of the park because while I was driving that boat, a 45 passenger boat around Stevenson Island, which is the large island in the north of the lake, um, I, I was uh, I was trying to give people in that time some appreciation for what they were seeing as we were circumnavigating the island. And but people wanted to know more about that. They wanted to know more, not just around the lake area, but the other thermal features that everyone is aware of. The, the famous Old Faithful Geyser, there's a Grand Prismatic Spring, there's Mammoth Hot Springs, there's the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. And so I had to know enough of the basic history, geology, cultural impact of the Native Americans to be able to speak to that. Uh, but but no one can really know all of that. <laughs> I just had to know the answers to the most common questions and then direct them to a park ranger for say when when I didn't know the answer. Say I don't know that answer. <laughs> and that that actually brings up an interesting question. What what is the most common Yellowstone question that you got when people were out there? Yeah, it's it's uh, well, I, how I say it, it's it's sad and humorous at the same time, Anil. Uh, where are all the bears? That was the most common question I got. Is ever, uh, many people wanted to go to the park to see a bear. Uh, and uh, at, at, at the time, at least in the late 70s when I were there, it was not common to see a bear, believe it or not. And it had gone through periods of time when part of the, the history actually early in the park, uh, many, much of the wildlife uh, sadly was almost decimated. Many of the bison, uh, to give you some quick, quick uh, review, at one point in the early 1900s, there were less than 300 bison in the park, if you can imagine, out of a population in Northern Plains that were estimates between 20 and 30 million. So imagine uh, the, the recovery of the bison, of the elk, of the wolves, which is controversial unto, its, uh, controversial unto itself, but all of that is much, much better uh, shape 
today than it was 30 or 40 years ago and certainly a century ago. So I digress a little bit, but the answer to your question is where are all the bears? Because the bears, uh, they, we, had, we had learned thankfully that, you know, at one point the, the bears were actually very prevalent, uh, black bears especially, and people, they would actually encourage their pictures, photos, uh, in uh, in the early in the teens and twenties and nineteen twenties, of them bringing tourists uh, to garbage dumps and encouraging them to watch them while the bears fed out of a garbage dump, if you can imagine, in the park. In the park. wow, I'm I'm sure that led to some not good encounters. I, I I would. No, not good for the bears. Not good for the people. Just poor wildlife management. We've learned. And we know much better how to manage among a population that really, uh, as in all wildlife, would prefer to be uh, remain distant from humans. So going sort of into the, the genesis of the book, uh, Burning Ground, uh, which is really the story of the founding of Yellowstone. And I, I think it's interesting because Yellowstone, when we think of national parks, pretty much anywhere in the world, Yellowstone has got to be maybe the first or, you know, you know, it's world famous. And I don't think many of us, you know, know the story of how it was created, but also it is kind of amazing that there's this huge natural area that's left relatively untouched by humanity for this long, you know, well into the, you know, into 2022. So how, how did that all happen? You know, is it just luck? Is it happenstance? Uh, yes, sort of, maybe. <laughs> uh, so, so I'll try to condense it. Uh, but, but the, the, in, uh, in 1869, let's start there. In 1869, uh, there was a small group of Europeans, white men, uh, who, uh, who conducted a little bit of a survey uh, into the park uh, briefly and documented uh, some of their findings. Uh, the following year in 1870, there was another group that uh, we know from their, from their writings and their recordings and, uh, uh, and, uh, and so forth. It was called the, the Washburn uh, Langford Doan Expedition. They, they went into the park, into the thermal areas and came back with, uh, with documented uh, would have been heretofore a lot of uh, legends and myths, but no one really had uh, had surveyed the park and really had come up with anything to substantiate what the fur traders and trappers and mountaineers who had gone through the region talked about. Well, they actually confirmed many of these things. And then that leads us to 1871, where they, what I would call a seminal event uh, and, uh, for the founding of the park, and this is why. In 1871, a geologist by the name of Ferdinand Vandeveer Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N, was commissioned by Congress. He, he was appropriated funds to, uh, and they supported him in a very large, truly scientific expedition of the Yellowstone region in Wyoming territory. And uh, how large was it? Uh, he had um, about 35 or 36 men with him, scientists, most of them, and support personnel. Uh, and he had a military escort of about the same size uh, to provide protection in, uh, as they went through the park. And they spent 38 days uh, going around the park in all of its areas. And with them now, they had the means uh, by which they could truly me measure and, and document things. So they had, they had ornithologists, zoologists, meteorologists, geologists, painters, photographers, map makers. I mean, they had, truly it was the scientific expedition. So they were taking samples, they were taking temperatures of thermal springs, they were photographing, they were painting, they were so uh, in these 38 days, a tremendous amount of information uh, duly documented and sampled was gathered. That information from the 1871 so-called Hayden Expedition 
uh, was then presented, or at least a preliminary report by Hayden was presented to Congress later that year, along with the photographs of uh, William Henry Jackson, first black and white photographs ever taken of the area, Thomas Moran paintings, colored paintings of these wonderful thermal features and canyons and rivers and so forth. Uh, imagine if you're a member of Congress and now you see before you uh, samples of flora and fauna and photographs and paintings of this wonderland. And, and uh, why would, how could you uh, not uh, vote to say, this is so extraordinary, we need to set this land aside. And sure enough, the very next year in March, March 1st of 1872, 150 years ago this year, President Grant signed into law the Park Preservation Act, which established the world's first national park. So that was a little bit of a long history lesson, but an important one to understand uh, how the birth of the park uh, kind of came came out of some expeditions and how that convinced the, pol uh, the, the political will of the Congress to set aside this land just for, in quotes, the, in, the, in the Park Preservation Act of Neal, it, uh, it's often uh, paraphrased and it's appropriate. It's set aside, quote, for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. So uh, it's, it's a wonderful story of the founding, and that's part of the wonderment of why I wanted to set my novel uh, in that 1871 timeframe, because it's such a, a wonderful time, a genesis of, of the park system itself. And I guess this is a silly question, um, but, you know, it almost goes contrary to to what we think, right? We think of this natural land, maybe Congress would want to exploit it or, uh, you know, make a settlement there. Um, so it, it, it's, it's surprising, right, almost to, to create a park there. It is, and I'm glad you brought that up, Anil, because but for a year or so, and but for a couple other circumstances, Yellowstone could be Las Vegas. And that sounds almost absurd, but it wasn't. In fact, in, it, it, the, here's the astounding part. There were people in, in 1871, while the Hayden Expedition was there, that already had made a land claims within the park borders and were planning to, uh, for example, there, there was a, a fellow there who was already setting up bathhouses at Mammoth Hot Springs uh, because they were mineral springs uh, like Sarasota Springs, like, uh, like the hot springs in Arkansas. They, they are, they are a, uh, they have curative, you know, their beneficial uh, uh, healing in those waters, those mineral waters, and he was going to make uh, a commercial uh, use of that. The, the Northern Pacific Railway had, had talked about uh, putting a railroad through the center of the Yellowstone Territory. Imagine what it would look like. There was a railroad, it, but, but for a few things happening, it almost came to pass a railroad, they talked about putting an elevator from the top of the canyon down to the bottom of the Yellowstone River near the falls. Uh, all of that was, was but for a few people who, 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 who said, time out, time out, we are not going to do this. Um, but but there, were, there was a time when it was on the edge, I would say, is this going to be a true natural land we preserve and protect? Or are we going to commercialize it in some great sense that frankly would have spoiled uh, everything that makes it, in my view, so wonderful in its natural state? Wow. Wow. I, I guess we've all gotten very lucky that, that those things didn't happen. And it, it seems like Yellowstone created the precedent for other, all the other national parks. So It did. It was the world's first national park. And that it is it became the model for not just in america but worldwide other countries said you know uh as someone once said it's a, a, a one of america's best ideas was a national park and thankfully other countries uh, saw the value in preserving and protecting the beautiful lands that they have in their country 
And now in the late 1800s, this was a pretty wild, I mean, this was not the United States we know today, um, right? I mean, this was dangerous. There were, I mean, still a lot of the land was under, you know, Indian and indigenous people's control, as far as I understand it. So that these expeditions were pretty dangerous and not just from, from the land itself, but, but from, you know, the people who had, who were living there. Yes, it was. Uh, it was, and I, if I might say right up front, uh, Anil, uh, in my novel, I mean, one of the things that I learned and appreciate even now, uh, much more even than before I did the research uh, for the novel and added to my knowledge of the park, I have a great respect for the indigenous uh, populations because uh, they were there tens of thousands of years before the white man ever showed up, right? It was their land. In fact, the tribal areas around that area, there were many tribal lands. I'm sure I'm gonna leave a couple out, but, a couple out, but just to give you some appreciation. Uh, uh, some of the indigenous folks who called uh, part Yellowstone, or they considered it part of their land and it was sacred to them. It was hunting ground, it was a gathering ground. Uh, you had the crow, you had uh, Nez Perce, you had the Blackfeet, you had uh, uh, the, the Pigan Blackfeet, you had, the, you had the, the Lakota Sioux, you had the Northern Cheyenne, you had the Shoshone. You had, so uh, the, the point here is that many of these tribes uh, uh, often went into the, the, what is now the park area uh, to hunt, to, uh, to go to, there's a place called Obsidian Cliff where they would go there to uh, there's a large wild light uh, cliff area where that, that, that they would harvest and, uh, and uh, gather um, uh, obsidian, which is a sharp edged uh, um, a rock that they'd use for arrowheads and spears and scrapers and such. And, and they, for tens of thousands of years, they saw this land as a part of, their, uh, of the land which they considered their own. When, of course, when with the Western ex where expansion and with settlement in Montana and the Dakotas, we all know, or most of us know, the history of the conflict that inevitably arose between the European settlers and the indigenous folks of, of all kinds of tribes. And, uh, but at, in 1871, it truly was a dangerous place uh, for the, for the, the fact that you had uh, largely, uh, mostly uh, folks like uh, tribes like the Blackfeet and uh, Lakota Sioux who pushed back hard against that westward expansion of settlers and miners and ranchers and the railroad. And um, th they did not want to be placed on a reservation. I cannot blame them. Uh, and as a result, uh, they saw any most white men as intruders to their land, rightfully so, I would say. And, and did Yellowstone end up being a sort of battlefield? I would imagine we have this huge area of land that's sort of, you know, cordoned off as a national park, right? There are borders and there's going to be no, no settlement there from the, from the U.S. What, did it become a fighting ground almost? Uh, no, it did not. Uh, it, generally speaking. Uh, now, uh, so picture this uh, in your mind's eye, uh, the, you know, the tribes uh, all around the park, uh, they, 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 uh, they were centered on like uh, just north of the park where, where the Blackfeet, uh, north and east of the uh, park where the Crow, but the Crow were aligned themselves with the, the, the U.S. government. They are, they're kind of unique in that sense. And you could talk about the history of that later, but the Lakota Sioux to the, to the east and northeast of the park, the Cheyenne to the east. I mean, they're, the, most of their land were outside of the park region. They would do, take forays into the park region. So there were no, technically, no battles, one exception being the Nez Perce in 1877 in Yellowstone, um, uh, most of the battles, uh, the battlegrounds and the conflicts arose 
uh, in the center of those other territories surrounding the park. And you brought up an interesting point as well about the, the Crow aligning themselves with the U.S. government. Um, why, why did that occur? It, it seems uh, counterintuitive. Yeah, it is. Uh, but uh, there, was a, uh, there was a chief of the Crow, uh, uh, one of the reasons. But the, the, the Crow were very small uh, people relative to their enemies, their, their enemies, their, their prime enemies were the Blackfeet and the Sioux, the Lakota Sioux. They were much larger tribes. They were uh, just by sheer numbers, they had more warriors. So, uh, and, and so they, they saw an opportunity to say, uh, how can we possibly, we are outnumbered. We don't have the, the, the weapons, right? Uh, to, to really fight uh, these, uh, our, our enemies. <laughs> Think about this, the domino effect. The white settlers and miners and ranchers are squeezing the territory of the Blackfeet and the Lakota Sioux, which in turn, they're squeezing the territory of the Crow. And so uh, this all precipitated in conflicts between, not just between white men and indigenous people, but between the tribes themselves, because those areas were being compressed and challenged. The Crow said the only way we're going to survive as a people is if we align ourselves with the U.S. government. They clearly have the, the, the I mean, it was pretty clear they had, they had the means, they had the technology, they had the overwhelming force. We align themselves with them. We will end up in a better place in the long run, even if we might be on a reservation, if we ally ourselves with them. And that's why they made that choice. And did that alliance include helping with exploring the park and, and sort of understanding, you know, all the, the, the parts that were unexplored for the, for the expeditions? Uh, the, the, the Crow were not active participants in the exploration of the park. They clearly knew the area. Their main alliance was with, uh, as, uh, as they, they were recruited and uh, contracted as scouts. For the for the cavalry, and uh, in from 18, early 1870s to the late 1870s, uh, those scouts were critical uh, part of the cavalry's uh, reconnaissance when they were fighting, especially the Lakota Sioux. Uh, in fact, history tells us that the the Crow and the Arakara tribe, uh, those scouts were critical uh, were participants. Um, key participants in, for example, the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Uh, so they thought they, it was it was a twofold thing, right? Uh, ally ourselves with the government, uh, be you know be be friends with them, and we will we will end up with um, a, a better a better place in the long run. At the same time, uh, we have a chance to fight our mortal enemies, the Sioux. So uh, that's how the Crow aligned themselves and then ultimately fought against the Sioux by, by, uh, by working with the, the, the U.S. Army and the cavalry. And as for the surveyors, you know, the people who are going out there, are these people who had maybe been, you know, in the, in the Midwest, who had been exploring other parts, maybe Texas, the, the sort of the, as, as things pushed westward, or were these people who are, you know, from the cities or just fresh? I can't imagine there were too many of those, you know, like city folk going out there, but um, what well, kind of it people? Was actually, it was actually an interesting blend. And, you know, uh, Hayden himself, this he'd done a series of geological, and he was a geologist by trade. So he worked for the USGS, but he had done a number of series of surveys in Colorado, uh, in the Dakotas, in Nebraska, he had, he had already uh, done a number of these other, uh, surveys, geological surveys. So he was an experienced geologist and uh, ex uh, survey member. So he was a, a, an obvious choice to lead uh, this expedition. So he, and then he selected people who were, uh, uh, frankly, it was a mix. It was a mix of people who he truly needed, people he truly trusted and wanted. It was, they were true scientists in their day. Uh, but but at the same time, there were people who were 
political appointees, for lack of a better term. They were political appointees because guess what? Congress funded it. Um, uh, and so you found, he, he found himself uh, taking on people in the expedition that were not by choice, but were basically said, you know, for political purposes, it would behoove me to take the son of a senator <laughs> who was actually a part <laughs> of the expedition. I mean, he knew where his bread was buttered, right? So that young man got to go, go along. And there were, so there were some folks who really uh, had no qualifications per se, but it was the right thing to do. In addition, uh, one of the sponsors was a, was a Smithsonian institution who they really wanted a lot of uh, samples for, their, for, for that, for that uh, museum. And, uh, and so they asked for some folks to be uh, engaged, but, but for scientific reasons. I mean, you know, you would want those folks to be along. And there were some folks who were, frankly, um, trained as medical doctors, but went um, because they were scientifically trained, they served in other capacities. So it was an eclectic, interesting mix of folks. Um, but in the long run, they really got the information, the samples, the photographs, and the paintings that uh, really became the the foundation for convincing Congress of the unique area. And what are some of the dangers, I guess, then and now, I'm assuming a lot of the dangers are, are probably the same if you just wandered into the park on your own. Um, what were some of the dangers of just showing up and really not having much of an idea, aside from maybe what the scouts have told you, what you've got from the traders who had been, uh, but there's not a lot to go on, I don't think. Yes, thank you for bringing that up because, well, imagine this. I mean, if you're a park visitor now, even if you've never been there, you've seen pictures and many of the pictures, they will have pictures of not only the features, but you will notice there's boardwalks, there's signs, there's roads, there's buildings, right? Imagine going in there when none of that existed. I mean, the, the indigenous folks had, had been through there for thousands of years, but if you are actually exploring that area for the first time, here's a, here's a good question. How close can I get to that hot spring before falling in? Uh. <laughs> I mean, the, the boardwalks were not there. There was no sign saying, stay back, right? There was no sign, stay on the boardwalk, don't wander off here. The crust is thin here. This spring is very hot. None of that there. And so uh, it, it, was, it was an adventure to, to so th that was one example, right? Uh, the, uh, another example of the, the first boat by a European, at least, on Yellowstone Lake. And I can appreciate this, having driven a boat, a modern boat on the lake, um, was, was constructed on land. They, they were gonna, right, and they pieced it together. Uh, it was a canvas covered wooden hauled frame with a horse blanket for a sail. And they sailed this small two person boat out on the lake, uh, a very deep lake, which uh, averages in the upper 30s in temperature uh, for water temperature and is over 300 feet deep. That's not something that, uh, having been out on that lake and as large as it is, I could tell you, and the weather changes in an instant in Yellowstone, if you'd be caught out on that lake in a storm in that boat, they called it the Annie. Uh, if you, you well, it, you wouldn't have made it back to shore. So, I mean, there's, the, and, then the, and then there's the wildlife, the grizzlies, you know, probably the, probably the main, uh, you know, uh, a, a mother grizzly uh, is nothing to be fooled with. Uh, even if you are armed, she will fight to the death. And, and so there's, there, there was lots of perils there, uh, mainly because it was, it was unknown. And so I guess bringing it to today, how, how is the park different? I mean, you mentioned a couple of things like the roads and the boardwalks. Are there any other parts of it that have stayed the same? I, I mean, is it vastly the same, the wild areas, or are, are there other changes that, that one would notice, I, I guess, from those days? 
uh, it is largely, thankfully, largely unchanged. Now, uh, and so wisely, it took a, it took de a few decades to realize this. <laughs> One thing we haven't talked about, Neil, yet is that the park. Before I get to that, let me just give you a little bit of another piece of history that's fascinating. The park. It's easy to write. Let's well, say. So in 1872, but with a stroke of the pen, Yellowstone National Park is established. But um, not to be too cynical. But the Congress, uh, as in many of the laws that are passed today, not to get too political, but the fact of the matter is, but there was nothing passed to supplement that law, right? There was no staff. There were no staff. There were no, there was no enforcement. There, and there was nothing there to, they said, we're going to preserve, protect this area. But in fact, there was no teeth to that law. So poachers were prevalent for the first uh, two or three decades in the park. Uh, they, they would, I mean, they, they continued within, they would kill with impunity the wildlife in that park because, uh, you know, people still wanted uh, buffalo uh, uh, heads and buffalo hides. Uh, people would still, uh, you know, still thought of wolves as vermin that needed to be exterminated. Uh, people still hunted elk in the area. I mean, in the park. And uh, But there was a superintendent in the first couple years with zero staff to cover 2.2 million acres. How practical does that sound, right? So long story short, uh, from 1872 until... Um, uh, I believe this is right, 1886 uh, or 1888, uh, that's when the park actually transferred temporarily from the Department of Interior uh, to, to the Army. And the Army actually, the U.S. Army actually managed the park for some 30 years from huh. 1886 to, to, uh, to, uh, to 1916. Uh, and uh, and they actually were the first uh, uh, governmental organization. And in 1916, the National Park Service was founded. And then we know today the Park Service uh, was founded. And then the Department of Interior took over management of it. But in many ways, the U.S. Army saved Yellowstone National Park uh, because there. Uh, Heretofore, there was no way to manage uh, and control and enforce the laws of what had been established as a national park with, with, with by no means to hold people accountable for violating any of the, the laws that, that were passed with it. So if that makes sense, right? Uh, so there's a little history. I'm, I'm answering your question. But for that uh, intervention of the U.S. Army, um, the, the uh, well, they were already, people were defacing the, you know, spraying graffiti and writing their names on features and, and like I said, poaching animals and, and they, and they would get away with it uh, because there was no, there was no one to really manage or control any of that. Or meanwhile, tourists were continuing to come in. Uh, you needed some, somebody to, to uh, figure out how to manage these folks. And it was in fact the army until 1916. And at that time, you know, was maintaining the park, as far as the government was concerned, was that something of, of national sort of pride? Was it because there was tourism income potential? I, I mean, that's, it, to me, it seems like a, a pretty early concept of, of tourism. Um, or was it maybe we'll need this land for something else in the future? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, uh, in reality, in reality, um, um, if you think about it, in those early years and uh, the, the turn of the last century, there were many uh, entrepreneurs who were uh, uh, needed uh, to, to, uh, to, you know, it very rapidly went from a couple hundred people in its first years to tens of thousands of people to hundreds of thousands of people at the turn of visiting the park. So uh, there were entrepreneurs who would try, you know, build and set up a hotel. 
there was stagecoach service. So obviously before the automobile, there were uh, folks uh, uh, who had set up uh, a stagecoach service uh, to provide, you know, you get off the, the, the rail, the, the train, the railroad, the train, uh, you know, in uh, Montana and in Bozeman or Billings and, uh, and, and then they would provide stagecoach service into the park and in tours around the park. And, and, and so you needed, and there were hotels, those simple little shanties and log cabins and, uh, and got a little bit more extravagant there. And so, and, and yet I think, frankly, in looking back, I think there was a, the, the government uh, as a managing entity was struggling with the balance between how do we provide what is needed for clearly this tourist destination uh, and balance that with protecting the park yet still do it in a way where we don't spoil the landscape that the very landscape that people want to see. Thankfully, um, the elevator was not built <laughs> in the Grand Canyon, right? The railroad did not go through the park. Um, so they had enough people pushing back to say, look, let's, let's provide what we need to do to serve this, to allow people to see the park. But um, let's draw some clear lines of we will not, we will not spoil the landscape. And for the most part, I think that was successful. And, you know, in the research of the book, you, you go into the details of, of really the, this expedition of founding the park, what was the research like? What kind of records were you able to get a hold of? What exists and how, how easy or difficult was it to sort of get a hold of all that information? Well, the, the main, uh, the, the, there were a couple of main sources that I relied on heavily. There's, 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 there's quite a bit of Yellowstone history that's documented, although those early years, it's really confined to uh, a few uh, things. Hayden's actual, he called it the fifth report, it was his fifth geological survey, is pub in his public domain in the National Archives, and he documented it is voluminous. It is hundreds of pages, but it's very detailed. Um, it has maps that were drawn. It has uh, it has descriptions of geological features. And, uh, and the other thing that was really helpful, and I relied on heavily, were a couple of key members of Hayden's team kept personal diaries. So every, you know, at, at the end of each day, they would literally handwrite um, you know, what they experienced or what they saw or what happened that day. And I find I, that was frankly the foundational part of my um, uh, story because leading up to my novel, what I simply, what I did was let me take what actually happened and what I knew happened through the eyes of people who had been there and imagine a protagonist, a modern day protagonist traveling back in time and being with that Hayden expedition in the 38 days, day by day, as they traversed across this land that few people had seen and imagine the interactions he would have with that group. Um, that was the research that was critical for me to make, to, to blend historical uh, events with a fictional character. Wow, that that's fascinating. I will I will leave a link to the to the book in the show notes. Um, but as, as we wrap up things, I just have one final question. There's been a lot of talk about the the status of the parks in recent years, funding for the parks or using or maybe you know using the parks for drilling or or these kind of things. What what is the status of the national parks in Yellowstone? Are they are you know? Are we taking them for granted in a sense? Could they potentially shrink or disappear as, you know, there are more and more of us, right? So like people are expanding. Um, is that something that, that's happening and how, how can we protect uh, those areas? Well, that's interesting going forward. Uh, I, I don't, I'm just gonna give you one man's opinion. That's only my opinion. Um, and maybe maybe I'm an optimist, but it is my view. Uh, I do. I sincerely believe that um, I don't believe we're going to shrink our national parks. Uh, 
I, I think to the contrary, we're going to find more areas that need protection. Uh, I maybe maybe uh, uh, maybe that's optimistic, but I believe that to be true. And history tells us that's to be true because every year there are some areas we find that need some kind of so, say let's let's make sure that we you know let's let's not in let's be wise about this. So uh, that that's as a general statement that is my belief, and, and I think there are enough people uh, who would align with that that there would be huge uh, pushback on uh, the exploitation of it. Now there's always going to be that tension right between. Uh, exploitation and uh, commercial use versus versus uh, setting aside. We have that in our national forests, and whether we not we use the uh, the resources for our national forests for as an example. But the parks are unique uh, in that regard, in that um, they are they are not meant to um, to be ex uh, exploited commercially in in any way. And I would like to believe that there will always be a strong political will, uh, regardless of where you are on the spectrum, to say that we, this is sacrosanct, and we will not, we will not uh, go back on uh, centuries of uh, a great idea and decide that we are going to um, make an exception here and start using it for commercial purposes. Um, so. There are more of us, Anil, you're absolutely right. But uh, although it may sound paradoxical, my view is that should not be a reason for us to uh, to say, uh, yeah, but what what if, you know? Should we deny people the opportunity to go see the parks? No, we should not. We need to get creative in figuring out how to manage the huge influx of people who want to go to our national parks, Yellowstone, set up attendance record last year. Nearly 5 million people visited that park. When I was a tour guide there in the late 70s, Anil, uh, half that number were there. And the, the, the infrastructure has not changed dramatically in those 40 years, but we have twice as many people. So that, I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenge, but uh, we should, we just gotta find ways to go in the off season, uh, go to the places that are less popular. Uh, th there are things you can do to go, uh, and you know, if we have, to, and some parks are saying, you got to have, a, 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 we only let so many people in at a time. If that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do. But do not, do not put up a, you are not permitted here sign that that's not the answer either. Well, I, I, I share your optimism. I, I, I definitely hope that um, you know that that we value those areas um, just because the the natural world once it's gone right we don't we can't build a Yellowstone right we can build plenty of Las Vegases um, but we can't build a Yellowstone and and I really appreciate your time this conversation has just made me more fascinated about these areas and and the national parks and Yellowstone which I haven't been to yet which is <laughs> oh my Neil. Well, you are you are currently in Colorado. You're only one state away. <laughs> yeah, I'm very close. And it's just a place that I've always wanted to visit. And for some reason, I, I just keep putting it off. I don't know why. Well, uh, if I may say in closing here, Neil, uh, my, my, my novel, Burning Ground, uh, I just want to mention that going back to the indigenous uh, people. Uh, it, uh, that name of that ground is so apropos in my view, my humble view, because that's what the Crow Indians called Yellowstone. They called it the land of burning ground. And isn't once you are there, Neil, anyone who goes there and visits those thermal areas, the geyser basins, and if you could look out across that landscape and see the land on fire, which is what you are seeing because you're looking at the remnants of a ancient volcanic caldera that exploded 600,000 years ago. And you're seeing the, the what you're seeing is the, the surface remnants of that. Um, how can you not fall in love with a place like that? It's there's like no one else, nowhere else like that on earth than in Yellowstone, the highest concentration of geysers and hot springs in the world in Yellowstone. 
Wow. Well, I, I think I'm just moving it higher up to my, it's always been at the top of my list, but sometimes it's one of those things where I feel like, oh, I'll just get around to it. But um, I, I don't think I'll put it off too much longer. And I think people listening too, who haven't been, or maybe have been, but not, you know, in a while, um, I think you've really sort of inspired us to to go to Yellowstone. I, I really appreciate your time. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, I will, like as I mentioned, link to the book in the show notes. Everybody can download it, buy it, get a hard copy, and uh, and read about this really fascinating look at the people, you know, who what it was like to go there. I mean, I think it's crazy. I think that's just absolutely crazy. <laughs> you know, imagine just getting lost in the park today with a phone and with modern clothes, you know, not easy. <laughs> the only thing I would ask you, your listeners to do is if they have not been there before, and, and uh, it goes without saying is be respectful of the people around you and the land that you are in. Uh, even today, it is sacred ground. Uh, not literally to some tribes and figuratively for the population, uh, the world citizens who visit, uh, treat, it as, treat it as such, treat it as sacred ground. Thank you, David, for being a guest on the podcast. And thank you for supporting the Fox Nomad podcast. We keep breaking records. We just hit a record on iOS in North America, broke a couple records in Europe for the podcast, reaching the top 50 in all of those regions in the last two weeks which is really incredible your support makes it all possible thank you so much thank you to all my guests my guests have been wonderful and if you haven't if you're listening to this podcast if you really want to help it's free it's easy just leave five stars wherever you're listening to the podcast whether that's ios you know apple Podcasts. if you're listening on spotify spotify now lets you do ratings but they didn't before but now you can leave ratings so those ratings really do help get the word out about the podcast. I've got a lot of great episodes coming up for you right now, between now and the end of May. The end of May, early June is going to be the end of this season three. And I'm going to, I've got lined up a lot of great guests, and a lot of great episodes coming up for you. So stay tuned for those. Make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you're given five stars. But until the next episode, I hope you have a great rest of your day.